Good morning and thanks for your introduction, uh, Neville. As we've heard, our uh, talk this morning is from Romans uh, chapter 5. It's entitled uh, Secure in Christ. And we're going to read the first uh, 11 verses. If you turn to Romans uh, chapter 5 and in the Pew Bibles, that's uh, page number uh, 942, page 942. So let's read from uh, Romans uh, chapter 5. You know, Romans is a a book that has inspired Christians down through the centuries. And in it, Paul tackles some of the big theological issues that are central to our faith. But in doing so, not only does he deal with those big, big issues that stretch the mind in trying to understand, but he brings comfort and warmth and peace to us as believers as we read his words. There are great eternal truths and words of peace and reassurance. So let's, let's read those. Romans chapter 5, verse 1. Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have gained access by faith into this grace and in which we now stand. And we rejoice in the hope of the glory of God. Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance, perseverance character, and character hope. And hope does not disappoint us because God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. You see, at just the right time when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man some might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Since we have now been justified by his blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through him? For if when we were God's enemies... We were reconciled to him through the death of his son. How much more, having been reconciled, shall we be saved through his life? Not only is this so, but we also rejoice in God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through whom we have now received reconciliation. Romans isn't always an easy book to to read or study. Paul's arguments are often lengthy and detailed, and studying the passage demands concentration and commitment. And yet some of the best-known and best-loved verses that we have in the Bible are found in Romans, and they, in a few short words, capture amazing, immense truths. Some of these I've just plucked out, and they're from memory. Um, When I was at Sunday school, and many of you at Sunday school would have learnt these, these words... In chapter 1 we have, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, because it is the power of God that brings salvation to everyone who believes. In chapter 6 and verse 23, a lovely little verse that says, For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Jesus Christ our Lord. And then the final one there, in chapter 10 and verse 9, points the way of salvation. If you declare with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart 
that God has raised him from the dead, you will be saved. In those very short verses, we are able to capture some of the uh, immense truths of the gospel. And yet, I speak for myself, there's a tendency to shy away from Romans because it is and can be complex in its arguments. So why does Paul take this approach in Romans? Paul wrote this letter in, we think, AD 57. He was probably in the middle of his third missionary journey, which if you've been attending previous Sunday mornings, you'll have heard uh, descriptions of Paul's journeys. It's thought that he was at Corinth when he wrote this letter to the Romans. He hadn't been to Rome up to that point, but we know that he had every intention of visiting it. We know that Paul had an intention to travel to Spain on what would have been his fourth missionary journey. Now, whether he actually made that or not, we don't, the scriptures do not recall. But it was his intention to stop off between Jerusalem, where he was returning to from Corinth, Jerusalem then to Rome by ship, and then further by ship to Spain. That was his intention. So it's thought that he wrote this letter to the Christians in the city of Rome to introduce himself. He uses the letter as that introduction to reinstate his own uh, claim to be an apostle. Unlike many of his other books, he doesn't deal with specific behavioral problems that are going on in the church. He deals with the the massive, the global picture of the gospel. Now, we know that Paul did eventually get to Rome, but he didn't get there by the means that he had intended. When he returned from Corinth with the, the gift of money from, for Christians, the poor Christians in Jerusalem. He'd only been there seven days before he was recognized by some uh, Jews uh, who had see, heard his preaching in Asia and who had really risen up against him there. And they created a bit of a riot in the temple complex where Paul was. And the riot grew so bad that the Roman soldiers had to intervene and they arrested Paul. They took him away for safety. There were various plots in his life at Jerusalem, and they, so they transferred him to Caesarea as a prisoner. He may well have been tr- tried and executed at that point because he was seen as a troublemaker, but Paul said, hold on a moment, I am a Roman citizen. So as well as being a Jew, which was his religious designation, his nationality was as a Roman citizen. And that meant that he, he had the right to be tried in Rome. So Paul was bound and brought as a prisoner to Rome. And we've heard on previous Sunday mornings some of the fantastic adventures that Paul went through before he eventually arrived in Rome. He was put under house arrest in Rome when he got there. And it's thought that he was released, but perhaps two years later was eventually taken as a prisoner back to Rome where he was sentenced to death and executed. Now I said earlier that Paul didn't write Romans specifically to deal with behavioral problems in the church as you would see in certain other aspects of his writings, places like Corinth and so on. But Paul does address one big issue that was impacting the new church. Uh, and that was that there were, Christian, there were Jewish Christians and Gentile Christians. For many Jews who became Christians, they saw Christianity as an extension of Judaism. They continued to observe the rituals of their faith, the laws given by Moses. So, for instance, they would refrain from eating certain types of food. They would uh, 
practice circumcision and other rites that were given, passed down through the law by Moses. Now, many Jewish Christians weren't impressed when they saw these Gentile Christians who, the kind of Johnny-come-latelys who come into the church, and perhaps there was resentment. Because the Gentile Christians were not bound by Judaistic law. And this caused resentment. If you think of the the parable of the vineyard workers in the Gospel of Matthew, I never quite understood it, but this may have given me a little insight. So the the owner of the vineyard goes out and he hires someone at the beginning of the day and he said, I'll give you one dinar for working, denarii for working the whole day. And at at, at noonday he goes out and he hires some more workers and brings them in, I'll give you one denarii. And he even brings some folk in an hour before the end of the day. And at the end of the day, he pays them all the same. And the guys who'd come in early that morning and started, you know, and worked the whole day, they, they were pretty mad. Why did you do this? And the lesson of the parable, uh, Jesus said, was that God will decide who will be first and, and who will be last. So the Jewish Christians were a bit like that. They were jealous of the Gentiles because they had gone through all this ritual which they still associated with their faith, and the Gentiles had not. The Gentiles were free to eat uh, what they liked. They didn't have to perform various rituals. And on the other hand, the Gentiles may have been very proud of their freedom in Christ and may have flaunted it a little bit because they didn't have to, to abide by the traditions of Judaism. Now, Paul wanted to see unity in the church, and he saw himself as a peacemaker. He spoke from a position of strength. He, he was a Jew but he was the emissary to the Gentiles. And in this letter to the church in Rome, he restates the, the truths of the full gospel without compromising on its truths, but he does so in a way that will bring peace and reconciliation. There are really two themes that he develops. The first is the justification of guilty sinners by God's grace alone, and we will come back to that in a moment. And the second is the redefinition of God's people because up until Christ's death on the cross, it was clear that the Jewish nation were the people of God on earth. They were his chosen people. But now God's chosen people were not defined by their ancestors or by their rituals or by their religion. They were defined by those who acknowledged Christ as the Son of God who had been raised from the dead. Now in God's sight, there is no difference between a Jew and a Gentile. And in the first three chapters of Romans, Paul sets out the righteousness of God and the wrath of God. And that's why it's important before we come to chapter 5 that we have some understanding of the context of what goes on before. Paul explains that the wrath or anger of God is shown in his pure and perfect antagonism to evil. All human beings since Adam and Eve sinned since what we call the fall, are guilty and without excuse before God and will one day have to answer to God for their sins. We as Christians believe that is a reality. And that picture would be one of unrelieved darkness and gloom if it wasn't for the latter part of chapter 3 into the universal darkness of human sin and guilt shines the light of the gospel. Paul writes, but now righteousness from God, 
apart from the law, has been made known. This righteousness from God comes through faith in Jesus Christ. There are, and I didn't collaborate with the folk who chose the songs this morning or with Neville on this, but it's interesting that we have touched on two of these key words, justification, righteousness, and grace. These are three important words in the chapters that we're looking at. And we've seen the definition of one of those little... So I remember at Sunday school being taught that ju- what was justification? It's not a word you use in everyday language. What does it mean? It means what it sounds. It's just as if I'd never sinned. God looks at me, and instead of seeing David Bingham the sinner, David Bingham is going to have to pay for his sins at some point. God looks at me just as if I've never sinned. Now, how can he do that? Well, we'll come to that too. The second concept is the righteousness of God. Again, it's a word that uh, we don't use very much in uh, 21st century. And it's a a complex theological, uh, it's a a concept that that is, is, is complex. I've I've defined it as the standard that God requires of us. But we'll come back to that. And then grace, the little hymn we sang, was far better. Grace is what is when God gives us the things we don't deserve or it's unmerited favor. Something his God's behavior towards us, which is motivated by his love. But it is grace that he gives all these good things to us. Martin Luther, the uh, 16th century German monk who brought about the Reformation in the church, wrote after his conversion. Because Martin Luther had studied this book of Romans for two whole years. That was his life as a monk. His primary purpose was to translate it from Latin into German. And he wrote afterwards, I had greatly longed to understand Paul's letter to the Romans. And nothing stood in the, in the way but that one expression, the righteousness of God. Paul just could, uh, Martin Luther just could not grasp or get round this phrase, the righteousness of God. Because he, he writes further, because I took it to mean the righteousness whereby God is righteous and acts righteously in punishing the unrighteous. Night and day I pondered until... I grasp the truth that the righteousness of God is that righteousness whereby through grace and sheer mercy he justifies us by faith. Whereupon I felt myself to be reborn and have gone through open doors to paradise. The whole of scripture took on a new meaning and whereas before the righteousness of God had filled me with hate, now it came to me inexpressibly sweet in greater love. I feel that when you read that, you're hearing of the moment of Martin Luther's conversion, when he grasped through faith that God's righteousness could be imputed to him. Luther was someone who was desperately trying to gain God's favor by good works and following the rituals of the church at that time. But through God's grace, he grasped the truth that salvation comes through faith in the finished work of Christ. So just as Martin Luther had to change his perspective on the righteousness of God, 
The righteousness did not refer to the character of God, but rather to God's dealing with men and women. So maybe we have to change our perspective. If you're traveling between Newcastle and Kilkeel, there's a car park at the Bloody Bridge. Now, I should, I'm not using profane language here. The, the Bloody Bridge is named after a historical incident that took, part, took place in 1641. There was a civil war going on in Ireland, and both sides had captured, taken hostages, and the idea was they would exchange their hostages. They were being held in Downpatrick and Newry, so they were heading toward each other. But somehow the word got out that uh, some of them had been killed, and the hostages that were held by one side were slaughtered at the Bloody Bridge. And the waters and the river that ran under the bridge ran bright red with their blood. And at the Bloody Bridge, there's an interesting piece of sculpture. That's what that is. It was designed not that long ago by a German sculptor and put in place. And it's caused great angst and concern and perhaps admiration by some. So what, what is it meant to be? As you, is it, a, a, it looks like a melted candlestick to some. It looks like a dinosaur's head to another. And you need to walk around it. You need to change your perspective to actually understand what it is. Because and if you drive very slowly along the road, you will see caught between the two uh, pieces of rock is the shape of a man's head. That, is, that man's head is there to commemorate the um, smugglers who used to make a livelihood from bringing in imports from Europe to Ireland to avoid duty. There is a sort of contempor- contemporary nature to that because who knows in the future the men of Morn may well be smuggling BMW parts and Audi parts across the Brandy Path. But my point was, if you looked at that sculpture from lots of other angles, not, it would have meant nothing. But you change your perspective, and then it starts to bring about a, a meaning. And that's what, in a sense, I think Romans is trying to tell us. That this perspective, getting the right perspective, will bring meaning. I suppose there are lots of different motivations for being here this morning. There may be some folk, I'm sure there are some folk here, who do not believe in God at all. Uh, Yet you you enjoy the friendship and the warmth, uh, the hospitality of this church, but actually, as far as you're concerned, the God thing doesn't really exist, therefore won't impact on you. My appeal this morning to you is to change your perspective on that. I read some of that the first gulp from the glass of natural science will turn you into an atheist, but at the bottom of the glass, God is waiting for you. Is there any explanation for our existence beyond natural laws operating in the universe? The Christian view is that God does make sense of human existence. He brings meaning to our existence There are so many scientists who are Christians, who are believers, and can see the laws of the universe being bound together by a sense of design. I appeal to you to look at it again and ask those questions. Can anything else other than God make sense of our human existence? 
But maybe you're, you're someone who is here this morning, uh, you're a religious person, essentially. You've been baptized as a, as a kid, you've, uh, you know, you, you live a good life, uh, you do go to church, but ultimately you're depending on the rituals of the church for salvation. In effect, good works and living a good life. And if you go back to Romans chapter 3, you will see that Paul teaches none of those things will bring you eternal life. None of those things will justify you in God's sight. None of those things will satisfy the demands of a righteous God. This morning as we talk about Romans, I appeal to you to change your perspective on that. And then thirdly, there are folk in here who know the Lord Jesus Christ as their saviour, but sometimes doubts assail you. That is only natural. I defy anyone in here said sometime you haven't had doubts but you know the wonderful thing about uh, having a faith and we will see in a moment what that brings with it our faith in Christ is not dependent on our mood on our health on how we feel or on how we are circumstanced it goes much deeper than that and again I would appeal if you're sitting here this morning as a born-again believer and having doubts in your faith Change your perspective. Free up the gift that God has given to you. We've read in verse 1 of chapter 5, Therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have. Sorry, I think I've skipped one. And there are five things. Time means we will not go through all five, but... Paul says, therefore, since we have been justified through faith, we have peace with God. We stand in grace. We rejoice in our hope of glory. We rejoice in our suffering. We shall be saved from God's wrath. Let's just deal with the first two or three. We have peace with God. Peace is a wonderful thing. Many of you younger folk uh, have had the privilege of living in relative peace. I know terrorism impacts on our lives. Many of us didn't have that. Some of you will have grown up through world wars, um, through the troubles in Northern Ireland, and when you experience that, you crave for peace. But the peace that God talks about is different. It's not peace between man and man, but between God and man. And when we're justified in God's eyes through the death of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, we are reconciled to him and our sins have been forgiven. So this peace is more than the absence of war. It's a great blessing. Not to fear for the future, but to live in a real relationship with God. The peace in our heart that we have with God is so important. And you know what it's like? Let's say you have um, an argument with a person you love. Could be your girlfriend, boyfriend, husband, your wife. And you leave it unsettled and you go away. And you know that, and of course I'm not speaking from experience here, but <laughs> I got a glare there, I had to say that. But, but you go away and there's that awful naggingness that is the opposite of peace. And Paul says we have peace with God through our faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. The second promise that we have is we, ha- we stand in grace. And we've defined grace as unmerited favor. Because of our faith in Christ, uh, in the power of Christ's death, 
That has reconciled us to God and we receive his grace, his understanding and his unconditional love. It's a continuous love. It's not a sporadic thing depending on what sort of a day I've had or uh, what I, uh, my, my feelings. We are God's adopted children. Our legal status, when we receive Christ as our Savior, our legal status with God changes. It says in Romans chapter 8, we become sons of God. And that status is sealed by his Holy Spirit at the moment of conversion. We become sons and daughters of God. And going back to the third group I mentioned, those of you who have doubts sometimes about your salvation, go back to the basics. Go back to the fact that you are a son or you are a daughter of God. And yes, your feelings may be miserable, your health may be affecting you, your relationship with other people may be affected you, but the thing that isn't affected is that legality with God. You are justified in his sight. You have eternal life. You have hope in the future, which we'll come to in a moment. The status we have is sealed by his Holy Spirit at the moment of conversion. Thirdly, we, have, we rejoice in the hope of glory. We can, on a daily basis, experience the glory of God in our lives. I was coming in, I was just talking to a couple of folk, blue skies, sunlight, springs just happening. Yes, we can rejoice in the glory of God's creation, but it goes beyond that. This morning, as we were at the first service, we had bread and wine, which we took in communion with God. And they reminded us of the death of the Lord Jesus Christ. And it's very hard to explain unless you are participating in that event. We can see the glory of God coming through the, resurrection, the death and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ. But Paul means even more than that. He, he says he's looking to the future. One day the curtain will be raised and the glory of God will be fully disclosed. Jesus Christ himself will appear with great power and glory and we will be changed into it. The Christian has a future that goes beyond this earthly body. We believe, and that's our hope because God has said it, our body won't last forever, our heart won't last forever, the brain won't last forever, but our soul, and I suppose that's what distinguishes Christians from everyone else, we believe we have a soul that will last forever. You can't prove it. It's not a chem series of chemical reactions, but God has placed it in us. It's what distinguishes us from the rest of God's creation. Our souls will last forever. So the fruits of justification that we've read about relate to the past, where our sins are forgiven. They relate to the present, where we have peace with God. And relate to the future, we will one day stand in glory with him. We'll take time just to look at the third. We rejoice in our sufferings. In verse uh, 3 of chapter 5, Paul says, Not only so, but we also rejoice in our sufferings because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Paul doesn't say we rejoice because of our sufferings. He wasn't a, a masochist. And Paul would have known all about sufferings. He was beaten, he was hounded, he was hunted, he was starved, he was put in prison, he was deprived of 
fellowship, he really went through suffering. And he didn't rejoice because of that, but he rejoiced in it. Why? Because we know that suffering produces perseverance. Perseverance produces character and character hope. That word hope is used perhaps in a different way than we use it today. If I hope for something, I hope the weather will improve. I do so with an expectation but no certainty. But Paul actually in verse 5 says, and hope does not disappoint us. This hope that God gives us is not something that might or might not happen. It is something that will happen and hope does not disappoint us because Paul has, God has poured out his love into our hearts by the Holy Spirit whom he has given us. I want to just finish by quoting a verse that uh, was written by Paul. It's in Second Timothy. It was written his second time in Rome when he was in prison for a second time. He was facing death. This is Paul who had given up so much to follow Christ. He'd suffered terribly. He'd lost his freedom and eventually he knew he was about to lose his life. And Paul uh, comes out with Uh, these remarkable words. Yet I am not ashamed because I know whom I have believed and I'm convinced that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him for that day. I'm sure Paul had his doubts as well. I'm sure there were times when he was so lonely that his spirit must have cried out, God, why why have you left me? But yet at the end of his journey, at the end of his life, he's able to say, for I know whom I have believed. And I am convinced that he's able to guard what I have entrusted to him. What had Paul entrusted to him? Paul had entrusted his life, everything to him for that day. And that day is the day ahead when Christ returns in his glory and we shall be reunited with him in our new bodies to share with him his glory.